talking about um, Christians in the early church that were persecuted. Of course, all of these church letters, all seven of them were written to apostolic churches, you know, to churches which actually existed in the first century. And they were all being persecuted. Now, most of our time after Ephesus, we're talking about church stages of history which occurred later on. Like the one we're going to look at today, actually, that church stage occurred from the 300s to about the 600s A.D. But the first church that the Lord addressed was being persecuted. And I thought it was real interesting. I came across a prayer, and I had mentioned this prayer in our the last time we studied Revelation. This was a prayer that I'd like to open up with, which was written by a woman who spent 15 years in prison because of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't remember if she's Russian or Czechoslovakian or what, but her name is Anna Chertkova. And uh, this is a prayer that she wrote from prison. I guess she had just been released from prison after serving 15 years because she would not deny her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's open up with her prayer. She says, Glory to God for the gift of his only begotten Son, for all the fullness of salvation, victory, love, and joy in Christ, who is the source of life and all blessing. Glory to him for everything. Lord, what a great joy it is to deny oneself all things earthly and to devote oneself to you wholly and completely and to be your disciple. I praise you that you do not turn away us miserable fallen sinners who come to you. May you grant that we should ever recognize our own nothingness and our own spiritual poverty and that we should rely on Christ in complete dependence and in full obedience. May Christ be glorified in my life and in my death in order that his power may be demonstrated to this and to all future generations. I praise you, Lord, that you work most wondrously in things both great and small, that in eternity you are the same, working to subject everything to Christ. Lord, I do know what awaits me. I do not know what awaits me, but one thing I do know that I belong to you and that I am not my own. May you, Father, give me the strength to remain faithful even unto death so that I may be presented perfect, holy, and blameless before Jesus Christ. It is by his mercy that we live and have everything we need for life and for godliness, for fellowship with one another, and the spiritual food which I in particular am in need of. And for this reason, I cherish the time and the opportunity that you have given to me these 15 years in prison to feed on your holy word. In the name, the precious name of Jesus, I do pray. And Father, I would add to this beautiful prayer, may we all be like this lady and be able to one day word a prayer like this, that we would be thankful for any opportunity of of serving you and living for you and, and spending time in your word. Thank you for a testimony like this. We love you now. We ask that you would bless our time and may Jesus Christ be exalted in everything that we have to say here this morning. May we hear what the Spirit has to say to us as churches and also as individuals. For we pray in his name. Amen. That was a beautiful prayer. The glorified Christ directed the third of his seventh seventh revelation message to the first century church at what city? 
Pergamos. The third one was to Pergamos, which was then the capital city of Asia Minor. As we learned in last week's lesson, Pergamos was a very wealthy city. It was not only an intellectual center which prided itself on the arts and the sciences and literature, you know, that great, magnificent library they had, and on medicine, but it was also a very prominent religious center as well, with temples that were devoted to such pagan gods as Zeus and Diana and Dionysus and Asclepios. And it also had three prominent temples dedicated to the worship of the Caesars. So the Caesar cult was very active in Pergamos as well. In fact, as early as 29 BC, Pergamos had become the place for the first temple of the Caesar cult. That first temple was dedicated to Augustus Caesar, who was the Caesar in power during our Lord's adult life. It was in this atmosphere, which was completely adverse to Christianity, that there existed a little body of believers in Jesus Christ, and it was to them that the living Lord addressed his letter in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Now, in the latter half of last week's lesson, we covered only verse 12 in this letter to Pergamos. That's really the Lord's uh, salutation to the church. And we discussed... Um, Before we actually got into the letter, we discussed some of the interesting details about the actual city of Pergamos as it existed in the time, at the time John penned this letter. And then we talked what little we knew about the church which existed there. And basically what we know about the church is what we learned from this Revelation letter. And then we went into the third part of our outline and took a look at the description that Christ himself presented to the Pergamite Christians. And that description was that he is the one who has the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now the name Pergamos, we discussed this as well several times, comes from two Greek words and put together, what does it mean? Thoroughly married, or another word could be elevated. During um, the years 313 to 590 A.D., the church had become thoroughly married to the world. It became so thoroughly married that one Bible commentator said this. He said, the church became so worldly and the world became so churchy that no one could tell the difference. After the death of Emperor Diocletian, now he is the last of the ten persecuting Roman Caesars, the ones who persecuted the church. After his death, Remember, he was the one whose wife and daughter both became Christians. When he died, um, there were two men who were contending for the throne of Rome. One was Constantine in the west, and the other was Maxinitis in the east. Now, tradition tells us that on the night before these two men and their forces were to engage in battle at Milvian Bridge... Constantine, who had consulted earlier that day with divinators, they were occultic people who looked at the entrails of a sacrificed animal and read them, and they had told him earlier that day that he would lose the battle. He had gone to them to find out who would win the battle. They said he would lose. Well, he is reported that night to have seen a vision in the sky, and this vision was of a fiery cross which bore the inscription, By this sign conquer. And that very night, 
Constantine made a vow that if he won the battle that next day, he would proclaim himself to be a Christian. On October 28, 312 A.D., Constantine advanced his troops behind a standard which portrayed a cross on it. He had the cross put on it. And what do you think happened in the battle? He won. He did win the battle. He promptly kept his vow and he professed himself to be a Christian. Now, whether or not the story of this nightly vision, which Constantine is supposed to have seen, is true or not, we really cannot say. We don't know dogmatically if this is a true story. However, it is true that Constantine did claim to be a Christian after this battle. Now, Constantine's actual conversion to Christianity, and everybody I read agrees on this, his actual conversion is to be seriously questioned. There is little evidence, there is little spiritual fruit from his life to demonstrate that he was ever truly born again. He may have been, and I hope, that he might have been saved on his deathbed. I read in my encyclopedia, uh, World Book Encyclopedia, that he had himself baptized on his deathbed. So I, when I read that, I thought, well, maybe at the very end, this man did understand and was saved. I don't know. I'll look for him when I get to heaven. But there was very little fruit from his life to demonstrate that he truly was born of the Holy Spirit because of placing his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, atoning death for his sins, you know, on his behalf. There's no evidence of repentance of sin. Uh, or of a changed life. And with what the man did to Christianity, it's obvious that he really didn't understand anything about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the most obvious indication that Constantine was not truly converted comes from the fact that after his supposed conversion, which was after that battle, he committed several murders including suffocating to death in an overheated bathtub, his second wife, Fausta. And he also murdered one of his own sons, Crispus, in 326 A.D. And it was also after his conversion that he had his sister's son murdered. That was his own nephew. As he also had his sister's husband murdered, Licinius. Licinius had shared Constantine's kingdom with him for 10 years, and he killed his brother-in-law even after promising his sister that he would not hurt him. Durant, who wrote the story of civilization, Caesar and Christ, said this. He said, quote, a real believer would have been a Christian first and a statesman afterward. With Constantine, it was the reverse. Christianity was to him a means, not an end, end of quote. You see, in a political stroke of genius, Constantine married the pagans, you know, all these pagans we've talked about, who worshipped all these different gods, false gods. He married the pagans with the Christians. And he did this as a you know, means to an end. He de- did this in order to unify his empire. And it worked. Gibbon, who is the author of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, stated that Constantine tried to purchase the salvation of the people, so to speak. I mean, you can't purchase people's salvation. 
of course, but he tried to by promising them that everyone who would submit to baptism would receive a white garment and 20 pieces of silver or gold, excuse me. So if you're promised a new white garment and 20 pieces of gold, you're going to go and have yourself baptized, right? And say, well, yeah, okay, I'm a Christian. It was from Constantine also that the practice of infant baptism or christening originated. In his effort to make his whole empire Christian, he decided that he would just have all the young babies baptized and declared as Christians. Now this... I hope you know, is not at all biblical. An individual, whether an adult or an infant, does not become a Christian by being baptized. Whether they're sprinkled, whether they're poured upon, whether they're uh, dunked, or whether they're sprayed, whatever. I was sprayed yesterday with gasoline. I have to tell you that story. It's hilarious. My daughter had never filled the... Had never filled the gas tank, and she did it yesterday. And she pulled the trigger before it got into the little gas tank, and she aimed it right at mommy. I still smell like gasoline. Mm. But you know, a person becomes a Christian by grace through what? Faith. A person does not become a Christian by being baptized. And his faith, of course, must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a step of obedience which is to follow salvation. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It merely makes them wet. And uh, a a baby hardly knows what's going on when it is baptized. I mean, it doesn't even understand about sin. It's had no conviction of its own sin, or even a toddler, really. Now, I've heard about people three years old. I think maybe three they could understand. Dr. James Dobson says he understood at three. But a little one, two-year-old, I mean, it's pretty hard to think that they could understand about sin and, and, and a real, you know, having a really personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone, I, anyway, I would encourage anyone here, if you have not been baptized since you have been saved, you know, if you're looking back at your baptism, and I don't know who you might be, a baptism as a child, I was dunked three times as a baby. Didn't do a thing except make me scream and make me wet. But if you have never been baptized since you have been born again, you need to do that. That's the first step of obedience. It is identifying yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, resurrection when you come out of the waters of baptism. And it's hard to be an obedient Christian if you haven't taken that first step of obedience and um, been baptized. So I would encourage you, you know, talk to your pastor and, and make arrangements to be baptized as a step of obedience and identifying yourself and pu- making a public testimony of the fact that you have been born again and that you have placed your faith in Christ. Well, one of the first things that Constantine did as Roman emperor was to issue decrees which made the pagan priests become Christian priests. Now, you know that these men that had been serving Asclepios and Diana and Dionysus and Zeus, that they were no more truly Christians than Satan's own demons would have been. And yet, this was Caesar's decree, and so it was performed. He also saw to it that many of the pagan temples were turned into Christian churches. 
And he decided to keep many of the idols and the statues that were in these pagan temples in order to attract the pagan worshipers into the Christian services. In some cases, I read that even the names of the pagan idols were chiseled off of the statue and then the name of some Christian quote-unquote saint was inscribed in the place of the pagan name. An illustration of this unwholesome amalgamation that crept into the church can be seen today in a coin from this period of time, which is in the British Museum in London. Now, the the coin was stamped during the reign of Emperor Constantine I, and it has Christian emblems on one side of it, and on the other side it has emblems of the heathen gods Mars, Mars and Apollo. When Constantinople, now this is where um, Constantine made his, he made Constantinople his um, capital city of his empire. Constantinople today is, who knows, right, Istanbul in Turkey. Well, he named the city after himself, that's where it gets the name, Constantinople. It was dedicated, the city was dedicated in 330 A.D., and the elaborate ceremony for the dedication of this city was a bizarre mixture. It was half pagan and half Christian. They, uh, the chariot of the sun god was placed in the middle of the marketplace, and then over that was put the cross of Christ. So you see why Pergamos, this time in history, is called uh, thoroughly married. You see how the church was being you know, mixed in and, and married to the world. It is to be noted to his favor, however, and there are some good things that Constantine did. There definitely are some good things that he did. He did have um, crucifixion as a means of performing the, the death penalty ended. So after his reign, there never were any more crucifixions. He also did have his own statue removed from the pagan temples, you know, the Caesar cult temple. He had his own statue removed, and he renounced the offering of sacrifices to himself. So that's also a good thing. However, the people did continue to speak of his divinity, and he you know, really didn't stop them. They continued to speak of him as being divine and as the Pontifex Maximus of the Roman Empire. That was the title of the Roman Caesar, Pontifex Maximus. And he did continue to watch over the heathen worship and to protect its rights as well as the rights of the Christian church. So you see what happened? Now the head of the Roman Empire, the Caesar of the Roman Empire, had also made himself the head of what? The church, the Pontifex Maximus. Now it's interesting that while claiming to be a Christian, Constantine still consulted with pagan magicians for formulas in how to protect the crops of his empire and how to heal diseases. So you see, he had such a confused idea. He sort of just added Jesus Christ to his other beliefs about gods. And it's also interesting to know, I thought this was kind of strange, that the man, in addition to Crispus, the son whom he murdered, he had three other, at least three other sons. And you know what their names were? Constantine II, Constantius, and Constance. <laughs> I mean, to me, that speaks a little 
egotistically. <laughs> so this then, in brief, is how the Pergamite stage of church history came about and how the church, under the emperor's favor and under his protection, settled herself very comfortably into the world. Seeing himself as the protector of the Christian faith, he issued... So one of the first things he did was to issue an edict of toleration for Christianity. And so he elevated her to the position of being the state church. And his government provided money, lots of money, for the operation of the church. But what started as a blessing in that, you know, Christians no longer were being persecuted. They no longer had to had to meet in secret or fear about losing their own lives. What started as a blessing turned into a, a great curse. During the succeeding three centuries of this period, remember I'm talking about 313 to 590, so it's about 300 years of history, many anti-Christian practices which came from pagan origin were adopted into the church. And these robbed the church of its fervor, uh, its evangelistic fervor, and its fire. So over the 300 years of this stage in church history, the influence of paganism on the church increased step by step. Soon it began to be covered in a kind of a mystery of ritualism, which had a very strong resemblance to Babylonian mysticism. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Some of the additions to the church, which have absolutely no biblical basis, were that the rosary, which is of pagan origin, was introduced and forced celibacy on priests for priests and nuns was conceived of. That's another practice that finds its counterpart in the Vestal Virgins of Paganism. And then some of the additional changes which were introduced into the church during this age were as following. In 300 A.D., or about 300 A.D., prayers for the dead were added, and then the making of the sign of the cross, if you know what that is, making of the sign of the cross was added. And then in 375 A.D., the uh, worship of saints and angels was added to the church. Then the mass was introduced in 394 A.D. In 431, the worship of Mary began. In 500 A.D., the priests began to dress differently than the laymen. And then in 526 A.D., extreme unction was introduced uh, as a sacrament. Then in 593, the doctrine of purgatory has no biblical basis at all, was introduced. In 600 A.D., the worship services began to be conducted in Latin, which added to the mysticism because nobody could understand it other than the priests. And also prayers in 600 A.D. were started to be directed directly to Mary herself. Now, in this lesson this morning, we're going to study the fourth section of our outline that we started last week, we're going to look at the declaration from Christ, or 
of Christ, which covers verses 13 to 17. Last week, all we covered was verse 12 in this letter. And under this section, as you can see, we're going to look at, first of all, the Lord's approval, what he has to say by way of approval to this church, then his accusation against them, his admonition or his warning to them, then his appeal and his award. In verse 17. So let's start by looking <clears throat> at his approval. If you look with me at verse 13. Well, let me reread verse 12. First of all, he says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Well, in my little introduction here, we've already learned a lot of the bad things about the church at Pergamos. But the Lord himself, which was always his way, began his letter to this little body of believers by pointing out the good things that they were doing. He always, always gave the good news before he gave the bad news. What I was really telling you about in the introduction is what occurred in the Pergamos stage of church history. Not with the literal, literal first century church. They had their problems too, which we're going to look at in a minute. But most of the stuff I'm telling you about, you know, was, was during those 300 years, 300 to 600 A.D. And we have to keep that in mind as we go through these. Because here you're going to read about what well, we just read about, a man who was martyred for his faith. And you say, well, I thought Constantine ended all the persecution. Yes, he did in 300 AD. We're still, you know, listening to what Christ wrote, this first century church. And at that time, people were still being martyred. So just remember all this. Do you notice that um, twice in this verse, he mentioned the fact that he knew where this little church was positioned? Where were they positioned? Right. He, he knew that they were right in the heart of Satan's headquarters, and he sympathized with them for that. He said, for, he said, one place where Satan's seat is, and then later on, the end of that verse, he said, where Satan dwelleth. You know, contrary to what many people believe, even amazingly, what some Christians believe, Satan's throne is not in hell. As a matter of fact, Satan himself is not in hell, is he? He is currently the prince of this world, isn't he? Where is Satan now? Right. He's on this world. He even, believe it or not, has access to God because he's the accuser of the brethren. What was he doing? He was accusing Job, remember? So he has access still to God. And when we get further on in Revelation, we'll see where he's actually thrown out of heaven. And then he spends all his time on earth. But he has, as far as we know from the Bible, Satan has never even been to hell yet. Never even been there. So he is not, his throne is not in hell. His throne is right here upon this earth. And when John penned the book of Revelation, where was Satan's throne? Where was his headquarters? According to Jesus himself. I'm not making this up. Jesus said it twice. His throne was in Pergamos. Satan's throne headquarters was in this city of Pergamos. Alexander Hislop. If you want to write this name down, I would recommend that you do. Well, it's in your notes, so you don't have to worry about it. Alexander Hislop. I always forget about that. He wrote a book called The Two Babylons. 
And I personally recommend that every Christian should read this book. If you want to know more truth, if you're willing to face more truth, okay? Very, very powerful book. He gives a lot of documentation to show how the city of Pergamos inherited the religious mantle of Babylon after it fell in the days of King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar was the king of Babylon when Babylon fell. He's the king who saw the handwriting on the wall. Remember? Many, many take you farce. Now, the Babylonian priests who had kept the secrets of the ancient mystery religions which had been centered in Babylon since the days of Nimrod. Where did Babylon get its name? What did Nimrod build? A tower of Babel. Exactly. That's where Babylon gets its name from, Babel. Well, all false religion has its origin in Babylon, from Babel. Okay, well, he, this, in this book, he shows how these priests of this mystery religion, this Babylonian mystery religion, were forced to migrate after Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. They were forced to migrate and to transfer what amounted to the headquarters of Satan's religious system away from Babylon and to move it northwest to Pergamos where it remained for several centuries until it eventually moved to another city, Rome. Now, there were a number of evidences of the fact that Pergamos was the headquarters at this time for Satan. Remember, we talked about some of these things. Both the temple to Athena and the temple to Asclepios were adorned with what kind of an awful creature? snakes. And the snake is a biblical symbol for that old serpent, Satan. And the coins of this city depicted intertwined serpents. And that also is an additional indication of Satan's presence. Furthermore, as we've already mentioned, the emperor cult flourished in Pergamos. I mean, it was the city where the first temple dedicated to a Caesar was erected. And, of course, all kinds of other pagan worship was centered in Pergamos. And then that large altar of Zeus, I think I mentioned this last time, it was a 40-foot tall altar. It stuck out of the side of the hill right behind the city, some 40 feet at a height of about 800 feet over the city. So it looked like a big throne sticking out of the hill behind the city. And it looked like... Well, I just said a throne, and what did he say? Satan's throne was headquartered there. Zeus um, was considered the god of power, and worship to Zeus was about the most satanic of all the worship services. Very, very satanic. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to Berlin, the Berlin Museum today, you could see this altar. They took it out of Pergamos and they moved it to Berlin. That Zeus's altar is in the Berlin Museum and it was very frequently visited by a wicked man named Adolf Hitler. Furthermore, the worship of Dionysus went on in Pergamos. Dionysus, or Bacchus, was the god of wine. 
and drunkenness and revelry. And the worship of Athena, as I mentioned, she was the goddess of blood and warshed. She was worshipped in this city. And Asclepios was the counterfeit savior. They even called him Soter. I think I said I said Soterology, didn't I? Told you about that last. So it should be Soteriology. Soteriology. That's the study of uh, salvation. He was called Savior, and he was also called Great Physician. He was believed to have the power to even raise the dead. And what was his symbol? Remember, we talked about. A snake wrapped around a pole, which was a counterfeit sign of, of uh, a picture of Christ. He's the one who was lifted up on a pole. So all these things together give us evidence of the fact that this was as the Lord said. I mean, the most evidence we have is that the Lord said twice that this is where Satan was headquartered. But by looking at the actual city, we see, yes, this is definitely true. Then in addition... To approving of their works in the midst of Satan's throne, the Lord commended the little Pergamos church for holding fast to his name. You see that in verse 13? Now, although this church sinned by taking in the ceremonies of paganism, which later on we'll see developed into false doctrines... Uh, we, we talked about some of those already, of a very unscriptural nature that went on to pollute the true doctrines of the church. Yet the one thing that this church did was to hold on to the name of Christ. Surrounded as they were by paganism, they still held fast to Christ's name. They refused, and now I'm talking about this little church, this little first century ch- church. They refused to place incense on the altar of Caesar and say, you know, Caesar is Lord. And they refused to go into the pagan temples and worship the idols which were stationed there. There were, as a matter of fact, some very outstanding Christian leaders who were produced during the Pergamos stage of church history. It was during this time in 325 A.D., that the whole Arian controversy was fought and won. And this is something that you would study about, you know, I guess if you went to seminary or Bible college. The heretic Arius was a man who tried to persuade his followers to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. His concept of Christ was actually very similar to the concept that the Jehovah's Witnesses have today. Arius taught that Christ was one of the greatest of God's, or I guess the greatest of all of God's created beings. Is Christ a created being? No. Christ is the creator. So this was heresy. He said Christ was not divine, that he was just the greatest created being. He was not one with the Father. Now, at the Council of Nicaea, which was held in 325 A.D. and was presided over by Constantine I. The question of Christ's deity was the main issue at this Nicene Council. Bishops from all over came together to discuss, well, first of all, they wanted to write a creed of the Christian faith, which they did do, and one of the main issues was to discuss, is Christ deity or not? Is he one with God? The outcome 
of the Council of Nicaea, and you can read the details because I put them in your notes. It's very interesting to read about how this came about. But I'll just tell you in, on, the t- on the message here that the outcome was that the Council of Nicaea said, they declared that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God of very God. If you know anything about the Nicene Creed, I had to grow up learning the Nicene Creed. They said he is very God of very God. He's perfection of perfection, and he is God and man in one person. Is that true? Yes, that is true. So you see, they did hold fast to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, for over 1,000 years... One good thing to say about the church at, during the next thousand years is that they never denied the personal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really wasn't until the rise of rationalism and modernism in the 19th and 20th centuries that the church could be accused of false doctrine concerning the deity of Christ. Now, another thing for which the Lord Jesus commended this Pergamos church was for not denying his faith. They not only gave mental and verbal consent to the name of Christ, but they also trusted in the faith, the Christian faith. They trusted in him as Lord and Savior. Some of them, such as a man named Antipas, we see here in this verse, even trusted in their faith in Christ to the point of martyrdom. Now, there's nothing in the rest of Scripture or in extra-biblical sources to tell us anything at all more about this man Antipas. So all we really know is that he was a local Christian in the city of Pergamos, who, like many others during the first century, were willing to seal the testimony of their own faith with their own blood, of their faith with their own blood. And that's what this man was willing to do. Now, tradition, you know, when we say tradition, we never know for sure if tradition is true. We can't really prove it. Maybe one day archaeologists will enable us to say some things are true. But so far, all we have to go on about this man is that tradition states that he was the second pastor of the church at Pergamos. They say that the first pastor was Gaius, and you can read about him in 3 John, verse 1. Whether or not this is true, we don't know. We do know that the Lord called Mr. Antipas his faithful martyr in Revelation 2.13. Now, one thing we have to remember, again, I'm going to remind you as we study these later letters, you know, other than the letter to the Ephesian church, is that although they represent later stages in church history, yet the original letter was addressed to that little local first century church, which existed at the time of the Apostle John when Christians were still being martyred. And that's why this man, Antipas, was martyred. One thing that is, another thing that is very interesting to find out is that Antipas in Greek means against all. Two words, you put them together, it means against all. And I think that this suggests to us that he was divinely intended, he was a real man, but he was divinely intended to represent any believer who is willing to stand for the name of Christ for the deity of Christ and for the faith in Christ against all opposition, even if it costs him his life. 
Okay, let's move on now and look at the accusation that the Lord makes against the church. And that's in verses 14 and 15. He says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Lord Jesus, after commending first the Pergamite church for that which was good, then proceeded to condemn them or rebuke them for those things which were not good. Although their theological doctrine regarding the deity of Jesus Christ was correct, Their practical doctrines were evil. Very simply, the Lord was accusing them here of tolerating two false doctrines or teachings. When I say doctrine, you know that's the same as teaching. Now, please again notice that they were not yet, at the time he wrote this letter, this church was not yet one with these false teachings. They had not adopted these false teachings. During the time of the Pergamos stage in church history, they would adopt them. But as of yet, they had not adopted them. But probably due to their desire to show forth the love of Christ, what were they doing? They were tolerating these false doctrines within the church. Notice the Lord purposely uses a change in pronouns in this part of the letter. He said to the believers in verse 14, he said, thou. And then he goes on to say, hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And notice verse 15, he says, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You notice there's a change in pronouns from thou to them. Christ was speaking to his own. They were the thou. They were the ones in his fold. Those who taught the false doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, he refers to as them. And this tells us once again that although we, as finite human creatures, may not be able to tell the wheat from the tares within the churches, the Lord certainly knows who's his and who isn't his. So the basic accusation against the Pergamite church was that it had tolerated what it should have tried and tested and then dismissed, you know, then dispelled from their church assembly as the Ephesians had done, remember, and for which they were commended by Christ. It's interesting to notice um, that the Ephesians actually hated, if you go back and look at 2 verse 6, it says there that the Ephesians hated the deeds of the false prophets, whereas the Pergamites, doesn't say anything about hating them, but they were tolerating something even worse than the deeds, they were tolerating the doctrines of these false teachers. What had started as deeds in the first church had now developed into doctrine in this third church. One, please turn the cassette over for the continuation of this message. So, as I've told you again and again, even though this first
even though, as I've told you again and again, even though this first century little church in Pergamos, even though it had not officially adopted these false doctrines, it was tolerating them. It had taken the first step of tolerating them within the church. Perhaps, like I said, perhaps they wanted to just show loving tolerance to everyone with the hope that they would win them to the true doctrine. But that was their error. One of the very important truths that we should learn from this letter to the Pergamite church is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot tolerate doctrinal error under the excuse that everybody must be loved. Well, we must love them. Let them come into the church, you know. We have to show them Christian love. How else can we win them? Do you know the church is not to be winning people within the assembly? I mean, I know we give the gospel invitation, and that's great. But actually, the church is to edify the saints. We are to then leave the church, go out into the world, and win the people, then bring them into the church. Somehow or another, we've gotten that all mixed up, and we keep bringing the world into the church and saying, well, you know, we've got to show them love. And, we've, and what happens is in many churches, somebody can come forward and join the church and not even be saved. You know, they say, do everybody accept? Yeah, yeah, we want to show love. You don't even find out if they're saved. Next thing you know, they're voting on things that might affect the doctrine of the church. So this was their first error. First and foremost, we must love the truth, and we must let the truth of, the, of God's word be the final authority in the church. I'm not saying we shouldn't love the world. Of course we should love the world. We should love the world so much that we go out there and we give them the gospel message. But above everything, we must love the truth of the, of the word of God. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Well, in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, were introduced to this man, Balaam. I think Dr. J. Vernon McGee refers to him as the prophet for prophet. Balaam, he was a Gentile prophet who had God's words in his mouth, but the greed for money in his heart. Although this man had unusual gifts and he was an eloquent preacher, Yet he prostituted his gifts. He compromised for a price. Balaam was hired by King Balak, who was the king of the Moabites. And King Balak greatly feared the Israelites. Balak and the Israelites were about to cross over the Jordan River and to come into the promised land. And Balak saw that was about to happen, and he wanted Balaam to curse, to place a curse upon the Israelites. Three times, and, and first of all, Balaam refused. He said, oh, no, I can't do that. But then when Balak offered him a little bit more money, he said, okay. Three times, Balaam attempted to open his mouth and curse the Israelites. But what happened? Every time he began to try to curse them, God miraculously changed his words. I found this transparency, and I thought that's so true. God can't, I mean, man cannot curse what God has blessed. Every time Balaam opened up his mouth to curse the Israelites, the words would change in his mouth. I mean, if, if God can make Balaam's donkey talk, he can make Balaam's words change, and out they would come as a blessing instead of a curse. So finally realizing that he couldn't get properly paid for his services, Balaam 
if, you know, if he kept on blessing what he'd been hired to curse, Balaam came up with a very evil scheme, which he then shared with the king of the Moabites. And this scheme was a great success. Balaam figured that if he couldn't curse the Israelites, at least he could manage to corrupt them. So for his own personal gain... As the Lord said here in verse uh, 14, Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. At Balaam's suggestion, the Moabites made friends with the Israelites and they invited them to their parties, their pagan parties and their, their feasts. And they say, you know, come fellowship with us. We want to be your friends. Come on and have parties together. And the Israelites, who were told by Balaam that they were free, you know, they have liberty in Christ, so to speak. This is Old Testament. But Balaam told them that they were free in their covenant relationship with God to do whatever they want so they could go ahead and do, and do these things. The Israelites believed Balaam. And they went ahead and they mingled with the Moabites. And eventually what happened? They started intermarrying with the seductive Moabite women. And of course, all of this was in direct contradiction to God's will. So these people were defiled socially and they were defiled spiritually. One thing God stressed over and over and over again to Israel in the Old Testament is that they were to be separate from the world. He's always trying. That's why I gave him all these ceremonies and rules and, and rituals and things to, because he constantly wanted to keep them separate from the world. So they defiled themselves, not only um, socially and physically, but spiritually because eventually they started to worship the pagan gods. God, of course, had to move in judgment when all of this happened, and he sent a plague upon the Israelites, and 24,000 people died because of their disobedience. So what is the doctrine of Balaam that the Lord's talking about here in this church to Pergamos? The doctrine of Balaam is, we could say in a nutshell, the doctrine of compromise with the world. Now, although the church at Pergamos was faithful to the Lord's name, and although they held on to the faith regarding theological doctrine, you know, regarding his virgin birth and his deity and his resurrection, his bodily resurrection and salvation by grace through faith. I'm talking about this little first century church. They held on to all these things, yet... They did not remain separated from the world, but slowly they started to allow the, the world to come into the church. And in time, they amalgamated with paganism. And then, as it always does, paganism began to dominate, as we'll see in the next church, which is the church at Thyatira. You see, there was a little group of Balaam-type men who were allowed to come into this church, Pergamos Church, and these little Balaam-type men began to, and maybe women too, I don't know, and they began to say to the other people in the church, what harm is there in being friendly to Rome? What harm is there in eating with them and going to their feasts? 
and their parties. You know, how else can we show them love if we don't mix with them and mingle with them? Now, another important truth that we should learn from this letter in order to be effective Christians and in order to have effective churches is that we should desire holiness. As believers, we cannot win a lost world with a worldly church. The world is looking for something, believe it or not, they are looking for something which stands out as being different. They're looking for something that is righteous and holy, not for something that already blends in with what they have. They're looking for holiness in every aspect, in words, in deeds, in music, in dress, smell, everything. They will be one to Christ, you see, by a godly, righteous, holy church and by a godly, righteous, holy believer, one who walks their talk. In other words, one who practices what they preach. The world is looking today, I think more than ever before, they're looking for a man or a woman or a young person with integrity. What are we lacking in this country? All the way from the top to the bottom, we are lacking people with integrity. Unfortunately, as we've seen in years past, we're also lacking a man or a woman with integrity within Christendom, within the realm of Christendom. And that's when it's the saddest, is when we see Christian leaders falling. The second, well, let me go on or I'll never finish. The second false doctrine the Lord rebuked the Pergamite church uh, for tolerating was the doctrine of what, who? The Nicolaitans. Now, we were first introduced to this false teaching back in the letter to the Ephesian church. And there, as I mentioned, it was their deeds which the Lord said he hated. And now in the Pergamite letter, he's declaring that he hates something else as well. He hates their doctrine. He hates their deeds and he hates their doctrine. Now, we mentioned in our study of the Ephesian church that the word Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words which, when put together, means to conquer the people or to have victory. Remember Nike shoes? <laughs> victory. To have victory over the people. Nicolaitanism is the doctrine of a strong ecclesiastical hierarchy ruling over the common people, ruling over the laity. Nicolaitans eventually saw to it that the laymen, the common people, had no voice at all in church affairs, but they were made to blindly follow and obey the decrees of the clergy, we could call it, or the priesthood. And as we'll see in the Thyatiran stage of church history, this clergy, this hierarchy of uh, religious men eventually uh, separated themselves more and more from the common people into something like sort of an ivory tower type of existence. And you know what happens whenever those who are to minister to the people begin to lose contact with the people? They begin to, well, they, they cease to be an effective tool in God's hands. A servant a true servant 
is to be in contact with his people. He's the shepherd over the flock. He's to know them by name, and he's to care about them and and visit them and, and just love them. But when the men to, to, who are to be ministering to the people remove themselves from the people, they lose all contact. And God can't use that kind of a system. And Christ says he hates it. I'm not saying that Christ hates it. Well, I am because he says it. But he's the one twice he says that he hates it. And by the way, it is interesting to discover, I've discovered this this week, that the word Balaam, he says he hates two things in this church letter. The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Do you know that Balaam, the word, the name, in Hebrew, means Lord over the people? So it's a synonym for the Greek word Nicolaitan. What is God saying? He's saying that he hates it when one group of people try to lord it over his people. He hates that kind of a system. Well, there had been at least one man in the Pergamos church who had felt the sword of Rome, and that man was Antipas. Uh, But the entire church now was to feel the sword of the Lord in his very serious admonition to them in verse 16. Let's read what he had to say by way of admonition. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The warning of Christ to this Pergamite church here is essentially repent or you're going to be judged by the word of God. The sword out of his mouth. That's the word of God. Now, repent means to change your mind or to change your ways. The Lord was warning the Pergamite Christians to stop tolerating these two false teachings that he had just mentioned. All those who taught such heresies were to be exposed and they were to be put out of the church. And notice again the change in pronouns that he uses in the sentence. He says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against who? Them with the sword of my mouth. You see, the church is still his. The church is still his. He's standing where? When he's speaking these messages. He's standing in the midst of the churches, the seven golden candlesticks. The church is his, but those who are defiling it with these heresies are not his. They are the them, and it's upon them that he declared war. How is it that Christ will separate the wheat from the tares? How will he do this? He tells us here, really. He's going to do it with the word of his mouth. It is with the Bible, the two-edged sword. It's the word of God which slices humanity in half, right? The heaven-bound and the hell-bound. The Lord Jesus, contrary to what we might frequently hear within Christendom, did not tell these believers, the true believers in the Pergamite church, to keep those false teachers among them so that perhaps they would eventually convert them. He didn't say that. He didn't say to demonstrate Christian love and compassion to them or to be patient with them because they were just unlearned. He didn't say that. 
he said that he hated their deeds and their doctrines and the church was to repent of tolerating them, which means that they were to put them out. It's okay to go out there and love them and show compassion on them and try to win them to the Lord. But you put them out first. Remember, that's what the Ephesians did. You know, now we say about a church like that, oh, 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 they're so strict and they're so legalistic. That's a term we love to use. Oh, they're so legalistic. They, they, actually, they actually do church discipline. Well, the church is supposed, that's why the Lord commended the Ephesians for putting people like this out. We're to put people out when they sin and don't repent of it or when they're teaching false heresies. 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 6 makes it very clear that there is to be no intermingling of righteousness with unrighteousness. Now, if these admonitions from the Lord Jesus Christ were taken seriously today, and also from Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote Corinthians, if these admonitions were taken seriously in our churches today, many of them, most of them, would not find themselves in the mess they're in. You know, with pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. Or with, with leaders who are living immoral lives. Or with leaders who are encouraging worldliness within their churches. If we would repent, as the Lord warned his people to do in this letter, then the very first time a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or whoever in the church would stand up with a watered-down gospel message in order to appeal more to the tares in the church... If we were to repent and put these type of people, they would never have an opportunity to preach their second message. And that's what we should be doing. It's our fault, really, that men like this are filling so many of our pulpits. It's our fault. We should take care of it. We should do what the Lord says. We should repent. Now, the God of love, I hope you understand, is also a God of righteousness. He is a God of holiness. And he will not tolerate doctrinal error or immoral behavior. If it is not repented of, what does he say he's going to do? He's going to come quickly. That's what the Lord said in verse 16. And this isn't a reference to his return that he's talking about. This isn't a reference to his second coming. This is a reference to the divine judgment that comes to a church or to a Christian when it disobeys the word of God. He will come quickly, soon, suddenly. He might even come to that very generation which disobeys. And he will judge them by the word. I think a lot of churches have been judged. He has come quickly. They have been judged, and that's why they repeatedly get pastors who are out of his will. In many cases, not even saved men of God, not, uh, men of the pulpit, I should say. They've been judged. Those churches have been judged already. Well, I told you this stuff was going to get really hard. I warned you ahead of time. It's going to even get worse. Um, Next week and, well, probably for the next month, we're going to be stepping on a lot of toes. But there is some good news. Let me tell you about his award. The appeal is always the same. I'm going to save time by saying, of course, he says, uh, 
let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then he goes on to give these wonderful, wonderful awards to the overcomer. No matter how bad these churches get, there are always those true Christians in each church. There are always true believers in each church, and they are the overcomers because they have placed their faith in the overcomer himself, Christ. To them, he promises three wonderful awards in this particular letter. He says that they will be able to eat of the hidden... Well, let me read the verse. He says, He that hath an ear, this is verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. So what he's promising here are three things. To eat of hidden manna, to receive a white stone, and then in the white stone to find a new name written. Now manna, of course, was the heavenly food which was sent down from God to miraculously feed the children of Israel as they were wandering, you know, for 40 years in the wilderness. So manna typifies, it points to, spiritual food that God provides to us in his word. A golden pot or a golden censer of this manna was taken and it was hidden where? Yes, the Ark of the Covenant. It was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. You can read about it in Hebrews 9.4. The Lord Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, made it clear that this hidden manna, or the manna from heaven and then the hidden manna in the Ark of the Covenant, represented himself. It was a picture of him. In John 6:51 he said, "I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, meaning if any man internalize Christ, receive Christ into their heart, then he shall live forever." The promise here which is made to the overcomer is that he will spiritually feast upon Christ who has been hidden from the world because the world doesn't know him. Just like the manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, Christ is hidden from the world, the world which doesn't know him and doesn't want to know him. So it is upon Christ, the living bread and the living word, that the believer receives not only his daily physical sustenance and spiritual sustenance, I mean not physical, spiritual sustenance, but it's upon Christ that we will also receive our eternal sustenance. That's what he's saying. So the overcomer can feast upon Christ now, spiritually speaking, and feast upon Christ throughout all of eternity. Then the second thing that the Lord promises the overcomer is a white stone. Now this very possibly, most commentators feel, is a brilliant diamond, a white diamond. White in the Bible refers to what? What's it? Purity, yeah, and uh, righteousness, exactly. There were two customs which were very prominent in the culture in which um, John penned Revelation, and they might help to explain what this white stone is all about. First of all, it was common for someone to present another individual with a diamond when they were showing special favor toward that person. Now, is this a custom today? <laughs> 
I have one on my finger. Today, of course, it's a custom for a man to give the woman he has chosen to marry a diamond in order to show his favor toward her. So this white stone, we could say, is the Lord's engagement ring to the overcomer. It's his way of demonstrating his favor toward us as part of his dearly beloved bride. Now the other custom in John's day was in the courts of law, and it was a custom to uh, either put a white stone or a black stone in front of a person who was on trial in order to signify whether they were not guilty. What would they put in front of him if he was not guilty, do you think? A white stone. Or if he was guilty, they would put the black stone in front of him. Now, the giving of the white stone to the overcomer may also then indicate that he has been declared by Jesus Christ as not guilty. Because the overcomer has placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood washed him clean of all of his sins, the penalty for his sins has been paid in full by Christ himself. And therefore, even though that person is guilty, yet he is declared not guilty for all of eternity. So those are two wonderful promises. Then the last thing that the Lord promised the overcomer is a new name, which is to be written in the stone, it says. All I can imagine is that inscribed inside this diamond is going to be this new name. It doesn't say on the white stone, it says in it. Now this is a name, he says, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, some Bible commentators have understood this to be the new name of Christ himself, which is talked about again in Revelation, in these letters, in Revelation 3.12, where the Lord promises the overcomers at the church of Philadelphia that he will write upon them the name of his God and his own new name. And this new name is mentioned again in Revelation 19.12, where it states that when Christ comes in his second coming, when he comes to end the battle of Armageddon and establish his his, uh, millennial kingdom, that he is going to have a name written that no man knew but he himself. So this is talking about a new name that Christ is going to have that none of us know about yet. So some have suggested that the new name written in the overcomer's white stone, or his diamond, will be the new name of Christ. However, the wording of Revelation 3.17, to me, seems more to suggest that this new name, and to Bible, other Bible commentaries, you know, they're divided on this, but I, I agree with those that say that this new name is for the believer himself, because it says there that the new name is for the one who receives it. Perhaps... Now, I can't be dogmatic about this, but perhaps the Lord will write upon the inside of a white diamond a new name which he personally has chosen for each believer, for each one of us. A name of special communication and fellowship between himself and the Christian. And this will be a name known only to the Lord and to the one who receives it. 
Now, this name may very possibly reflect our special service to him while we were here on earth as well as whatever our special service to him will be throughout all of eternity. You know, the names that we have today were selected by our parents, of course, and they may or may not be appropriate to our character. But in the scripture, what do we find when God changes a name? He chooses a name which is uh, very perfectly fit to the character and to the calling of that particular person. Remember when he changed Abram's name to Abraham and Jacob's name to Israel. You know, it, it fit the individual and his calling. So it seems that Christ here is promising that those who are believers in him, those who are true overcomers, are going to receive a new name from him, which he will inscribe inside of that beautiful white gem. It will be the Lord's intimate and his private name for each of us individually. And to me, I think that's a much more beautiful thought. I mean, two other times in Revelation, he tells us he's going to have a new name too. And that's great. I can't wait to find out his new name. But I guess personally, it means a whole lot more to me to know that he's going to give me a special little nickname. You know how you have nicknames for your children? That he's going to give us that special little intimate name. And I don't know about the white diamond, but I was imagining, don't you think maybe we'll wear it? around our neck or something through all of eternity and we can look at that little name that he's given to us. I mean, it's just such a special blessing to think about. So three wonderful promises that he's given to the overcomer. Eternal manna to feast upon, a beautiful white diamond, and inside that white diamond, which declares that we're not guilty forever, will be our own personal name selected by the king of glory himself. I'll tell you what, I'm glad that I'm an overcomer. I am really glad that I'm an overcomer, and I truly hope that you are too. Let's pray.